Let's pray. Father, I can feel the words of Jeremiah as I open up your word and you have put on me the task of preaching your word, a task that I'm incapable of doing on my own, a task which requires full dependence on you. And I think about the heart that Jeremiah has and ask that you would give me an ounce of that. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terrors on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived and we can overcome him and take our revenge on him, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Lord, you are a warrior who not only takes on the enemy, but takes on our hearts as you wrestled with Jacob, you wrestle with our souls. So as your word is opened and you speak, we pray that it would be your spirit exalting Christ to glorify the Father. Lord, sanctify our souls, sanctify our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Colossians 3, verse 11. In the previous verses, Paul commands us to live in a way that reveals the new self that we are in this new self in Christ and to reveal that new self in Christ by putting away the old self and its sin. As Paul says in verse 5, by putting sin to death and one sin that destroys a church, destroys a family, destroys a nation, destroys the world is division. Luke eleven seventeen, Jesus said, and confirms the destruction that division causes. Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. That is why Paul warns us in Romans 16 to watch out for those who cause division. And division is the product of a lack of unity. They are opposed to each other. With unity, there's no division. With division, there's no unity. And if we are operating in our new self, if Christ is living in us and through us, then unity increases. To quote Pastor Christian from earlier, where he said, unity increases. It's interesting as we talk about unity and Christian and I preparing for this morning and he has the communion service and I've got the message and I've got in my sermon some extolling I want to do in Philemon and he stands up and says we're going to go through Philemon and I was like no you're not I am 
And then as he's teaching, he starts using verses that I have in my sermon. I'm like, dude, stop taking my sermon. And I shared that with him. He goes, yeah, unity. We're of one mind, the same mind. I know that a lot of that I was sharing with Christian actually about a week or two ago. I texted him and said, it's interesting how much you and I are of the same mind and the same thoughts, same direction, same ideas, same verses, same concepts, same desires, same actions, same decisions that we want to make, same way of counseling. All the things that we do and are just so in line. We're not completely, perfectly aligned, but really just constant confirmation that we are thinking alike. And I told him, I, I, for a while, my mindset was, well, that's natural because we spend a lot of time together. So that's kind of just how it works. You spend a lot of time together, you talk together a lot, and you just start thinking the same. And I realized that it's not just us, it's other people in our church as well who agree and unite and come alongside and say the same things and think the same things and agree in the same way. And that agreement, what I shared with Christian, was not just because we're natural, it's not just a natural product of spending time together, it is the product of Both of us being in the Word. And as we're in the Word, and we're filled with the Spirit as we commune with God, which is God's way of filling us with His Spirit and communion with Him, being in Word and in prayer, His Spirit fills and His Spirit leads. And if the same Spirit is leading me, that is leading Him, or that is leading you, we're going to go the same direction. And so, (laughs) this morning, (laughs) when when we're still operating without even communicating what these messages are going to be, still operating in unity, it is a beautiful picture and an awesome expression by God to do something that we did not even prepare, but that he prepared that only magnifies the reality of Colossians 3.11. That Christ is living in us and through us And when he does, unity increases. Meaning where division exists, Christ does not. Where disagreement among believers exists, Christ does not. And I'll talk more about disagreement because you can't say that all believers have to agree on all things all the time because what we we, we don't all agree that the Green Bay Packers are the best football team in the world. We don't (laughs) see what I mean? Look at that. Division! We, we don't all agree on, on everything. We don't all agree that pizza is the best food, all right? We, so, so there are things in our lives that we don't agree on, but all things pertaining to life and godliness, believers should agree on because the Word is the teacher, the Spirit is the teacher through the Word, and all things pertaining to life and godliness and the Word of God, believers should agree on. Now, that doesn't instantly happen. That is part of the... A sanctifying process, um, and that is the beauty of the church giving you leaders and elders and teachers and prophets and evangelists and pastors and, and shepherds and that's Ephesians 4.11 to equip you for the work of ministry, that they dump the word of God into your heart and mind, and then in so you receive the spirit, we're filled with the spirit together, and we all move in the same direction and develop agreement as we go. Where, where unity beautifies the body of Christ, 
Jesus is exalting himself through us and in us for the glory of God and the joy of his people. And ultimately, unity is not about us and, and how we get along with others. It's about the gospel and how it is changing our hearts and minds. It is about how much the word of God is sanctifying you into Christ-likeness. And then Paul gives us some first century examples to make his point in Colossians 3.11. In verse 11 he says, Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. There are distinct differences between these categories of people, and in order to understand the power of the gospel to unite believers, despite their vast and huge differences, we must understand these groups as uh, they are, like understand them in their first century context. So the Greeks and the Jews just didn't get along. Right? You could say Gentiles here, but he's being specific with the word Greeks. They didn't get along at all. Their differences were religiously and racially charged. If you lived in the first century, you would have thought that the differences between the Greeks and the Jews were insurmountable differences. And Paul mentions even circumcised and uncircumcised. Because for the Jew, circumcision was a sign of their covenant with God. Right? So the old covenant, in the old covenant, before Christ, before the new covenant in Christ, circumcision was the sign of the covenant, whereas in the new covenant, baptism is the sign of the covenant. So for the Jews, a sign that you are in relationship with God is circumcision. So the Greeks are not in relationship with God because they're the uncircumcised. So they would use this word, the uncircumcised, to kind of to kind of like take Greeks and Gentiles and put them off to the side and say, you're not as valuable as we are. We are more elite than you because we're in covenant and relationship with God. We are the circumcised. And so there's a dividing wall between Jews and Greeks. And it is their relationship with God. And this is the beauty of what the gospel does, is it overcomes that. And so the Jews, hating the Greeks would avoid them altogether. They wouldn't even enter the home of a Greek. They wouldn't eat food prepared by a Greek. And the tension between them is so tangible that when Jews would return to Jerusalem, they'd literally like shake their clothes off to shake off the Greek dust that was on them. But the gospel, but the gospel overcomes such hostility. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, Paul explains how the gospel creates unity between Jew and Greek through the flesh and blood of Christ. He says, for he himself, that's Christ, is our peace. So what is peace? What do you mean by peace? He's talking about peace, unity between each other, among one another. He says, he is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now for us, you know, we're Americans, right? You might have some European nationality in your blood or, you know, whatever, maybe you got a little bit of what, we're all kind of like mutts in some sense, right? Like we just kind of all have a, a variation of nationality and ethnicity in us from our ancestors, but we identify as like Americans essentially, right? Not ethnically, but culturally. And there's not a lot of difference between us. Not when you compare the differences that existed in the first century in the Middle East. Greeks, Jews, barbarians, Scythians, slavery, free. Those who are slaves, those who are free. You have a 
tons of different nationalities and different people from different religious backgrounds and different perspectives all mingling together, living in the same areas. And in some places like Corinth or, uh, or like Ephesus where there were like centers of transit where people would move in and out, kind of like New York City is a center of transit. People come to America through New York and New York becomes this super diverse place. That's a lot of what it was like in the first century in the Middle East in some of these major towns. Whereas when you're living in Midwest America, there's not as much diversity. There is a lot of diversity of thought, a lot of diversity in belief, a lot of diversity in in present preferences, but there's not a lot of ethnic diversity and even less, I would say, religious diversity. What Christ does is this concept of diversity that I think we have a harder time grasping because of the lack of diversity in which we live. We see it because we have the internet and we, have, we can see the diversity in the world and we understand it. We just don't live it in the way that they lived it in the first century because we're just not in their context. In their context, this is huge. The Christ, that one man would create peace between such opposing nations, that Jews who hate Samaritans uh, would, would unite together in Christ, that Jesus himself would go to a woman who was a Samaritan sitting in a well and would talk to her and everyone would be like, what are you doing, Jesus? He's like, you guys just don't understand what I am here to do. I'm here to unite people. I'm here to take different people from every nation, tribe, tongue, language, and unite them together. When we look at Revelation chapter 7 and we see that John has this vision of the future where every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people group is ascribed and represented in the worship of Jesus at the end of time. Because Jesus tears down the dividing wall of hostility. And he goes on in Ephesians 2, says that he might, this is why, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Think about the magnitude of that reality. That he would take two men and make one in himself. That seems weird to us. We, we talk about that in marriage, right? Marriage. Oh yeah, I mean I get the oneness of marriage. That makes sense. Because you got two people who decide to live the rest of their life in covenant together. Guess what? Marriage is a picture of the gospel. The gospel is not a picture of marriage. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage exists to exalt the husbandry of Jesus Christ over his bride, the church. The reason my wife and I are united as one, and that concept that we all very easily accept, is because we're in covenant together with God. Well, guess what? All of us who are believers are in, new, are in the new covenant in Christ. We are one together in Christ. My relationship with any of you as believers is just as tightly bonded together as my relationship with my wife. Because before she's my wife, she's my sister in Christ first. And I know that because in eternity we don't get to be married anymore. She does not like that truth. (laughs) 
I said, I promise we'll hang out. So, <laughs> a lot. We'll just hang out. We'll do a lot of cool things. It'll be a lot of fun. I mean, but the reality is, the reason we don't have to be married is because there's no way that there can be a tighter relationship, like marriage, than the one all of us will share in Christ. Amen. And that is a reality that exists today. That he takes two or ten or 50, or 100, or 1,000, or a million believers, and unites them as one in himself. And then there's the barbarians and Scythians. They were considered at the time the ultimate worst, worst people on earth. They were the low-level, bottom-of-the-barrel people group. One thing that the Jews and Greeks did agree on is how much they hated the barbarians. Barbarians were uneducated, inarticulate, and they were despised by the culturally, culturally elite. Jews, they were the religious elite. They thought of themselves as the top dogs of the religious world. Greeks, they were the philosophical elite. They thought of themselves as the best thinkers, the most articulate speakers. And the Jews were like, no, we're the best speakers. We got the word of God. And the Greeks were like, no, we're the best speakers. We got these cool human thoughts. That we, and they're really good orators as well. And then they looked at the barbarians and Scythians. And they're like, you guys are just garbage. You're just heathens and pagans. Scythians were even worse than barbarians. The Scythians were hated and feared. They were nomads who roamed the land, invading everyone and everywhere they could. They were widely known as savages, murderers, and invaders. First century historian Josephus says, that the, says of the Scythians, the Scythians delight in murdering people and are a little better than wild beasts. So it was a well-established and common cultural belief at the time that Scythians were the worst of the worst, most feared and hated people group for, for their extreme barbarianism. So imagine, just imagine a culture shock when a Jew and a Greek and a barbarian and a Scythian would join together in worship of one God in one spirit, one faith, and in one voice united together by the only truth that can tear down division, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul also mentions slaves and free. Slaves were considered worthless. Aristotle defines slaves as, quote, living tools. Funny how he considers that a, an insult, and believers today would consider that a glorious honor to be a living tool to God. And Christ calls us slaves to him. And yet in Christ, both slave and free become brothers and experience unity in Jesus that for the first century culture is an unmentionable reality. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. So what does that unity look like in the believer's life? It looks like this, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now just listen to those words. That is so incredibly important to how he describes what the believer should live like. Because I think oftentimes we look at commands in Scripture and we read this kind of 
like direction for our life. You should live this way. Your life should look like this. Christians should behave in this manner. And we read those verses and we think, that's, that's how I got to live my life. That's how I got to live my life. That's how I got to live my life. And, we, and that's important and that's true. And, and there's only one way we can live this life is if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We can only honor God if the things that we do proceed from faith. That's Romans 14. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Everything we do in faith and powered by faith is righteous. And it can only be powered by faith if the Spirit is empowering it. So the Spirit empowers faith. It's a gift from God. And gifts of God are delivered by the Spirit. And that's Ephesians 2, 8, that faith is a gift of God. And so by faith and in the Spirit, we can and only can we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And that will look like humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love and maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, if I do that, if I commune with God, if I'm in the Word and if I'm in prayer and if I'm filled with the Spirit, and if I am walking in a manner worthy of the calling of which I've been called, only because the Spirit is empowering that reality in me, if I can be humble and gentle and patient and bearing with you in love and eager to maintain unity, that is only by the Spirit that I'm doing that. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you will too. And if many of us do it, it will look awesome. It will be a beautiful expression of Christ living out of the out of his body. Not just an individual, but multiple people. It's, it's one thing when I see one person do one thing that's amazing. I look at believers, you in this church, and when I see people, you do a righteous thing with a godly motivation, and it's a good, God-honoring, glorifying thing, I look at you and I just go, oh, I just praise God that he is at work in you. I'm so excited for the work that God is doing in you. And it's, it's awesome. We praise that, that, we praise God for that work he's doing in that one person, but when God does the same work in multiple people, and there's unity and agreement, the amount of work that can be done is unfathomable. And it's more than just, oh, I really love what God's doing in you. You just kind of get blown away. Like, Look at what God is doing through tons of people in a uniting way. There's a reason that God took the people back, you know, thousands of years ago when they were building the Tower of Babel. He said, I have to take you people, stop this work, and divide you because you are doing it together. And if they can do it together in the same language, there's nothing stopping these people. How much more can we do unthinkable things through Christ and by the power of His Spirit when we have something they didn't have? God Himself in us. That is the oneness and unity that Christ produces. It is a unity that is strong enough to bond together in one spirit, opposing people groups who have hated each other for over centuries or different people in the same culture who think completely differently. And that unity in Christ is how Paul ends Colossians 3.11 by saying, Christ is all and in all. Because Christ is all and in all, we are equal with one another. We have different roles, different thoughts, different minds, different personalities. There's all kinds of differences and Nowhere in scriptures is to say that your differences don't exist anymore. 
There is clearly distinction and differences. In fact, we see it even in God himself that there is distinct roles in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. United as one, they are one, yet distinct in their personhood. And we are in Christ one, yet distinct in our personhood. Distinct personalities, distinct jobs, distinct roles, distinct gifts that make us what we would call different. And the beauty of unity is that there is still unity despite and in the presence of differences. That is, without the differences, without the distinctions, unity isn't as powerful. It, is, it doesn't magnify God's glory as much. The, part of the glory of the gospel is that it unites people who are so different and still the power of Christ can overcome differences, any differences, and create oneness in him, a oneness of thought, a oneness of doctrine, a oneness in practice, a oneness in patience, a oneness in humility, a oneness in the pursuit of ministry. And we all may have those different roles, but our value is equal. In Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul is convincing Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother, even though he's a slave. Onesimus, Paul says in in Philemon that uh, he wasn't useful to you before, but now he has become useful because he's saved now. Before he was a slave, and Paul says... Onesimus as a slave is not useful to you. Now he's saved, now he's useful. It's interesting because the name Onesimus means useful. And so God saves Onesimus, and I'll spare you the the story because Christian already shared it, so this is great, man. You just cut my sermon in half. Praise Jesus. So so in in Philemon 15 and 16, look look at the way Paul describes the change in the way Philemon should think about the slave, right? So Paul says there's no distinction between the slave and the free in Colossians 3.11. And then to Philemon, he says, for perhaps, for this perhaps is why Onesimus was departed from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. This is key, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Unity in Christ supersedes all human stations and status, even slavery or race or any human construct that creates a dividing wall which Christ has torn down to create equality among his people. To look down on anybody for any reason, your brother or sister in Christ, is spitting in the face of the gospel. I've talked about this all the time. I've been saying this for seven years from this pulpit. When we look at another believer and we look down on them in any way, even for their sin, we shouldn't look down on Christians for their sin. We should mourn for their sin. We should pray for their hearts. Not go, that person sins like this. But go, oh, that person is sinning. And I am them I am, ju- I am no better than that sinner. Their sin that they're committing is the same sin I would commit if it were not for the grace of God. In fact, I've got sins I'm committing that they're not committing. 
And if I were honest with myself, I would throw myself down on the ground like they are and I would beg God for his mercy, which he says you absolutely get for free by my grace in Christ. And that's the beauty of the gospel that lifts us right up from that despair and brings us into the joy of righteousness. So instead of looking down on one another, which is a dis- which is ultimately to despise the gospel because to look down on one another for our sin or for our differences or for any reason is to look at that person and say, I know that God looks at you and says, I choose you, I choose grace for you, I choose to love you, and I choose to give you mercy, and I choose to make you my child, and I choose to save you, regenerate your heart, pull you out of the mire of death and sin, and put you into my family, and make you one with the rest of the brothers and sisters in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring glory to me and joy to you. And then we look at that person and we go, ew! And God's like, ew, did you just call the, the person whom I just made beautiful in Christ gross? Do you just despise the very one whom I have chosen? They're not ew, they're not gross, they're not bad, they're not garbage, they are redeemed. I call them child, I call them loved, I call them conquerors, I call them victors in my son Jesus Who are we to look down on another believer who is filled with the same spirit that we have? Our hearts and attitudes are not reflecting unity. They're reflecting division when we despise each other and argue with each other and fight with each other and look down on each other, whether it's for our differences in thoughts, instead of looking for ways to unite and think the same, to find agreement, to work together and joy, and then to praise God for our distinct differences and still work toward unity. That glorifies God, but to to, to talk trash about each other or look down on each other or, or, or use any form of speech because Paul talked about speech just a few verses earlier in Colossians 3. says you better be careful how you speak. Everybody will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. Amen. How we view one another will come out of our mouth and out of our actions. And if we look at one another as anything less than redeemed by Jesus, loved by God, and if we look at people anything le- any less than that, as believers, if we look at be- other believers as anything less than that, we are spitting in the face of the unity, unity that the Spirit produces. And when we f- look at one another and we think, that person has a reason for me to look down on them, whether it's like sin, you know, like their attitude or the things that they say or the things that they do, if it's sin that makes us want to look down on them, two things, number one, check your own heart first. Number two, Don't look down on them. Praise God that despite that sin, he has still redeemed them and then pray that they would turn to obedience, that the Spirit would convict them of sin and draw them to the heart of Christ and then go to them and love them and serve them and help them and pray with them and talk with them and teach them. Church, we are not operating in unity. I mean, there's a lot of ways that I think Grace Church operates in unity. There's, I could give you a, many examples of unity in this church that I praise God for. And I could give you examples in which we're not united. And I could give you examples of ways in which I am a product of, div, not division, but not living in the spirit and thinking properly about other people the way I just described. 
It's our flesh wants to rise up and think that way all the time. And Jesus, or Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive to obey Christ. That means every ungodly thought I have about anybody, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, whether it's you or my wife or my kids or myself, to take that thought captive and put it in the grave where it belongs. This is the meaning of Jesus' teaching. When he says in Matthew 19, 30, first will be last and last will be first. Jesus is talking about, like, on the new earth, in eternity, in heaven, there will be no value of one over the other, but rather there will be an equality in eternity. The first will be last, last will be first. The guy, in the, cro- the guy who died on the cross next to Jesus, he didn't spend his life doing ministry. He didn't baptize people. He didn't get baptized himself. He didn't serve the church. He didn't preach the gospel. He didn't do any work. Very little work. Compare him to the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul. That guy's, that guy's going to get the biggest mansion in heaven. Right? There is, there's no distinction between the two. Because nothing Paul did on earth earns him any station in heaven Because it's nothing Paul did, which he admits in Philippians 3, that all of his works are garbage. Or the Greek word is skabala, which means dung. All of his works are dung, meaning Christ alone and his work and his blood and his flesh and his death and his gospel is the only thing that credits Paul in heaven. Same with the guy on the cross. Same with you. Same with me. And so in heaven, our unity is not... There'll be no division because there's none of us are going to go into heaven like, I did a lot more than you did. We're all going to be like, anything I did was Christ. He gets the credit. The reason I'm here is Christ. He gets the credit. And Christ is 100% perfect, 100% righteous, 100% holy, totally pure, perfect, righteous, good, godly, son of God, God himself, the one and only, our master, our Lord, our savior, Jesus Christ, all that he is, I get credit for. So who cares what I've done because it doesn't compare to what Christ has done. And if I've done a lot and you've done a little or if you've done a lot and I've done a little, it means nothing when we get to eternity. Because we will all be equally loved and equally enjoyed by God and equally saved. We will share in the same value and worth and position in Christ for eternity. And if that is true, then how much more should we express that equality in Christ here on earth and in the church? How much more should we agree with one another? In dealing with division in the church, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. That means that if we have disagreement, there is one of three things happening in our disagreement. One, I'm in the spirit and you're not. Two, you're in the spirit and I'm not. Or three, we're both not. Because if we're both in the spirit, there will be agreement doesn't mean that 
You know, like, I'll give you an example of, of, just to clarify. Uh, Christian and I spend a lot of time together talking about God, the Word, theology, doctrine, things like that. And we'll spend time together talking. Both of us could be in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, knowing God's Word, and still find points where we disagree. But the difference is, where we find disagreements, we don't divide. We work together in the same Spirit to find truth. So that we're united and on the same path. That's the difference. So when we have disagreements, we have to evaluate. And our testing ground for that evaluation is the Word of God. And so we go to the Word and we discern what is right. And together we pursue God's will from His Word in unity and in agreement. So... In addition to agreement, which I'll get to a little bit more, the agreement of doctrine in a second. In addition to that agreement, what does unity and equality look like today in the church? In Ephesians 5.21, Paul writes this. Submit or submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Unity looks like submission. To righteously submit to one another, we have to first understand that we are not more valuable than others. Does that make sense? Like you, if in order for me, a pastor, I'm a pastor. I'm a church leader. You know how easy it is for pastors to get big heads and think, "Oh, we get to tote around my spiritual authority." Da 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 da. You know how. If that kind of mentality, that ungodly and unbiblical mentality grows in a church leader, an elder, or a pastor, you know how hard it is to look at an eight-year-old and go, I'm going to submit a believing eight-year-old. I'm going to submit to your desires. I'm going to serve you by submitting to what you need and want. It's very easy without that mentality to look at an eight-year-old or a child or even an adult and say, you should do what I say. And just kind of have like this arrogance to you. Whereas Christ says, or where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in order for me to look at a believing 10-year-old kid and submit to his desires as a means to serve him or her out of reverence for Christ, essentially what Paul is saying is to look at every believer, whether they're 10 or 100 or anywhere in between, and say, you are as much in Christ as I am, and out of reverence for Christ in you, I will submit to your desires by serving you. In order to do that, we have to have the mentality that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, 3. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, pause. Take a moment. Think about your week. Think about the last week. Evaluate yourself. How have you thought of yourself in comparison to others? And I don't just mean up here in your mind because we know selfishness is sin. But think about the way we acted, the things we did and the things we said. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do we, have we, and will we die to self to exalt Christ as we consider others more than ourselves? 
We may have distinct roles here on earth or in the church, but all of us are equally loved, equally cherished, equally saved by God in Christ. So submission to each other has nothing to do with each other. Why would I submit to a 10-year-old? They're 10. What do they know? They don't know what I know. They're not a church leader. It has nothing to do with me and it has nothing to do with them, their age, their station, their rank, their position, their role. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Paul says our submission for each other is out of reverence for Christ, not out of reverence for them, not, of, not out of reverence for their age, not out of reverence for they've been in the church for, a hunt for 50 years or their family was here for a, hundreds of years or they have some particular role here or, or out of reverence for them because they have a, a doctorate in theology or out of reverence for them because they have some particular role in the church, out of reverence for them because they give more money or less money or out of reverence for them because of whatever thing, oh, they're a political leader. If I can just get in really good with them, then I can make a real, real big influence and change in the culture around us. It's not out of reverence for anything about that person. It is solely and strictly out of reverence for Christ. That regardless of who they are, and whatever differences or distinctions they have, Christ looks at them and says, I love them. And I love you too. And if you love me, which you do because I love you first, and I love them, which they, and they love me because they do, and they do because I love them first, then you two both love me. And through loving me, you love each other. So, Unity is submitting to one, one another or for each other out of reverence and love for Jesus. Meaning, I don't see your financial situation or your job or your knowledge or your cultural position or your status. I see Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's him we're serving. Especially when we do it, the way when we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Meaning how you treat others is 100% how you are treating Christ. And that is why we submit to one another, because we are acting towards Christ as we act towards each other. So Jesus expects us, he expects us to treat each other as we would treat him. Which is an expression of our unity in him. And Jesus' expectation for how we treat him is love so we express unity with each other in love he says in mark 12 30 you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength and love is best expressed in sacrifice which is how god loved us the best is in romans 5 8 he says god shows his love for us how in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrifice is the greatest expression of love. God shows us his greatest love in the sacrifice of his son. And then Jesus says the same thing for us. In John 12, uh, 15, 12 through 13, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So here's the command from Jesus himself. Your responsibility as believers is to love one another. How should we love each other, Jesus? As I have loved you. 
Well, Jesus, how have you loved us? For God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrifice, that's how. That's how he loved us. And that's how we should love one another. Love each other sacrificially. Jesus goes on in John 15 and he says, greater love, just to confirm this reality, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. So his command is, love one another as I loved you. How did I love you? I died for you. So how should you love each other? Die for each other. Sacrificially loving one another unto death. Are you kidding me? I think the church struggles to love one another unto giving up an hour of time to help each other. Avoiding each other not to serve each other. We have a hard time not talking trash about each other. How are we going to sacrificially love one another unto death? If we're in the Word, if we're in prayer, if we're united in Christ through the Holy Spirit, whom we are filled with as we commune with God in the Word and in prayer, we will start to see this reality come to life and sacrifice will no longer become a burden but a joy that we endure. That unity that we get in that love is expressed in love for one another, is also sh- it also shows up in agreement in doctrine. And that was the experience of the early church in Acts 2, 42-47. They all sat under the teaching of the apostles and devoted themselves to prayer, fellowship, and the Lord's Supper. And in verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. There was nothing that they disagreed on, nothing pertaining to life and godliness that they disagreed on as they were all filled with the Spirit to the point of all agreeing on selling their possessions for the sake of others. Like, they didn't just go, all right, guys, we're going to come up with a new rule. We're all going to sell our possessions and give it to people who need. We're not going to sell everything we own, but all of us together are going to sell a ton of stuff we have to make sure that we're taking care of the needs who have them. And we're going to call this program the, the Giving Tree. And, and we're going to start it every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. for an hour. And make sure that you're there. This is the new program that we're starting. Um, bring your friends and family. I'll have flyers available for you next week. See you guys there. Because that's what the church does today. We make programs out of things. You know what programs exist for? Lack of the Holy Spirit. Because if the Spirit is leading and guiding, we don't need flyers. And we don't need meetings. We don't need to say and do the things. We don't need to tell people to do these things. I'm not saying we don't communicate. Of course, there's a lot of communication that needs to go on, I understand. But they didn't have to communicate in Acts at the beginning of the church. They didn't have to throw together some program. They just knew it. They were filled with Christ. They saw the need. They filled the need. They were together. They had everything in common. Where did this commonality come from? It came from the teaching of God's word. They sat under the apostles' teaching. They prayed together. They fellowshiped together. They had communion together. They did everything that we have done in the last hour and a half. And they were united in the Holy Spirit by the power of God through the teaching of God's word and in prayer and fellowship and in the breaking of bread like we just did. And in those activities that they did day and night, day after day, constantly, they endured together and grew together in the Holy Spirit. And think about the church today. 
We have a hard time sitting in church for an hour. Sometimes an hour and a half is too much, but a two-hour service? Woo, I don't like that. They gave every day to Christ. I am not saying that we should go back to the first century church. There's a lot of distinctions between the first century church and us today that are different, okay? But their hearts, their hearts is what we should be after. That just... Christ-filled, spirit-led, don't need to have a discussion about this because I know this is what God's telling me to do as I sit under the tutelage of the teachers and preachers that God has assigned for us and they preach and we agree and of course we all agree because we're all filled with the spirit because we've been in prayer constantly and the word continues to be taught over and over and over again and I don't despise the teaching and I don't despise the prayer and I don't despise the direction we're going but I love it and we unite together in that and that idea of where we're going as a church. And that comes from doctrine. Those activities, that practice, that function, all of that action that takes place comes from the way that we think. And the way we think is a product of what we know. We know what we know because the Word teaches us what to know. And as we learn and we grow in knowledge of God, which is understanding the doctrines of the word of God, as we grow and learn those things, we get filled with the mind of Christ as we're filled with the spirit who imputes the mind of Christ in us. And what he does is he starts to change your soul and your thinking. And from that changed thinking and that mind of Christ come actions. And if I have Christ's mind, and you have Christ's mind, and Christ is one, he's not divided. He said that he can't be divided he's one, and he's in you and in me, then whatever you're thinking, I'm going to be thinking. And Paul tells Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 5, to ensure unity and agreement in doctrine. He tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. That's my responsibility. That's Christian's responsibility and Brian's responsibility as leaders, pastors, and elders in your church is we are commanded to teach and urge these things. What things? This. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain." Meaning, as your shepherd, it is one of my primary responsibilities to crush poor doctrine, to step on it, to kill it, to fight it, to hate it, but to love you in the process. And then to teach that which accounts with, account, accords with sound doctrine so that we would be united in mind and in truth. And in being united in mind and truth, we would all behave according to the word of God and we would function as one. Without unity in doctrine, we cannot practice unity in our walk. Hence the constant command to be in the word and in prayer and even in our growth into sound doctrine, there is also a need for sacrificial love. So it all comes back to sacrificial love. In order for me to grow in sound doctrine, I have to sacrifice the doctrine I brought to the table before I opened the word. 
I'm a pastor, preacher. I have a couple of Bible degrees. When I open the Bible, I go, I already know so much. I don't, I don't even have to sacrifice any doctrine. I already know doctrine. You think that's going to get me far in God's word? You think that's going to do me any good? You think that attitude is going to serve me well? Or serve you well? Definitely not. You know how many times per week I listen to other men speak, preach, teach, and I go, I didn't know that? Am I even a Christian? I didn't know. There's so much that God is teaching me constantly because we know that God is inexhaustible. We know his word is inexhaustible. Every one of us, regardless of what we know or don't know, should approach God's word with humility and understand that we are teachable and should be taught. We have to sacrifice what we thought we knew for sound doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul commands the church not to sue one another, so we talk about sacrifice, that the greatest expression of unity is love, and the greatest expression of love is sacrifice, meaning the greatest way to express unity in the church is to sacrifice for each other. How can we express unity in any other way but to sacrificially love each other? Not just love each other, but sacrificially love each other. And this is Paul's reasoning when he commands the church not to sue one another. Instead of suing each other, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, why not rather you suffer wrong? We don't think that way. We're a get-back people. Why would I do that? He did this to me. Why would I serve him? He hurt me. Why would I do this to her? She said this to me. But that's not fair. I won't live with this kind of behavior, or I will not stand to be treated this way. I don't des- no one deserves to be treated this way. We deserve hell. Hell. That's what we deserve. Of course you deserve to be treated poorly. I deserve to be treated. I have no standing upon which to say I deserve to be treated well by any human being. I'm a wicked, despicable, terrible, sinful, wretched man. I know my heart. I know Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is the grossest thing that exists on the planet. That it loves wickedness. I know it's true. I think about it every day. You know how much sin runs through my mind constantly? And I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to have those thoughts. You don't think that wrecks me every morning? Christian and I talk about it all the time. We're like, are we qualified today? Because I don't think I was yesterday. And I know we kind of talk about it jokingly, but we press in. It's like, dude, we are one bad decision away from losing our lives. Giving up a lifetime of ministry. There's a lot of sins you can do and keep your job. Not me. There's a lot of sins I do that will lose my job, lose my ministry, lose my calling. I have to press into that. I am a very, very terrible, and I know like a lot of people say, Mark, you really shouldn't tell people how terrible of a sinner you are because it really makes them lose trust in who you are. If, you, if you're not aware of how sinful I probably am, then you're probably not aware of how sinful you probably are. Because if you recognize your wretchedness, you probably look at me and go, he probably thinks the same thing, and if he's any, any holier than me at all, it's Jesus, not him. So who am I? Who am I to say, I don't deserve to be treated that way? 
I will not stand for the way for, for someone treat. I deserve it all. And Paul says, why not rather you suffer wrong instead of making others suffer wrong to, to justify you getting what you think is fair? Why not rather you take what's unfair and you suffer wrong? He says, why not rather you be defrauded? Unity in Christ produces a sacrificial living that extends even to the point of our own loss so that others can experience the grace and goodness and love of Christ. Because that is exactly what Christ did for us. He was wronged and defrauded and the wrong done against him was the greatest injustice of all time and we are supposed to love how? As he loved us. That's the command from John 15. We are to love as he loved us. How did he love us? By taking the loss. He hung on a cross for your sins. He did not deserve to die. If anybody has the right to say, I don't deserve to be treated this way, it's Jesus. And he said, but I will because I love. And my love is perfect, so it is perfectly sacrificial. And we are to love the way he loved, so we are to endure the loss. We take the loss. We take the suffering. We give up the vehicle. We give up the money. We give up the possession. We give it up for others. We give up our time. We take the loss. You're insulted. Take the insult. Don't give it back. Take the loss. They hate you for Christ. Take the loss. Jesus said, if you want to love me, you will be persecuted. Paul said if first second Timothy 2 12 3 3 second Timothy 3 13 12 <laughs> Christians go like this What is it? Thanks. <laughs> See? Wrong, right? United. 312. Okay. So he says those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And then you look at John chapter 9 and Jesus is like, yeah. Exactly, because there's a blind man who desired to live a godly life after Jesus healed him and made him see again, and they kicked him out of the synagogue, which was his parents' very fear. His parents were afraid to be kicked out of the synagogue, so they said, I don't ask us about it, ask him. He's the one who got healed. I don't know nothing. And they asked the man, he said, Jesus did it. And they said, you're out of the synagogue. And he's like, okay. I get Christ, deal. Are we willing to take the loss for the gospel? What kind of loss are you willing to take for the gospel? I I, I know a, a person who took a financial loss that was double their salary that they believed it was owed to them and they said, Jesus means more to me than that money that technically I'm owed and so to love someone else, I will give it up sacrificial love. And when I see that kind of love, that kind of sacrifice, that kind of Christ gave up his life for me, he gave up eternity with the Father for me to to, to live in eternity past with the Father, to be separated from that on the cross. Christ gave that up for me. I will give him everything, including everything I think I'm owed, every dollar, every possession, every thought, my life, everything, every breath, every praise, every word, every hour I spend at work is for Christ. I know it sounds zealous and radical and crazy. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Christian life is supposed to be, you know, sacrificial love. No, I mean die. Like really die to self. 
There are a million opportunities we miss every day to die to ourselves because we have the habit of being selfish. And I want Christ to break through your habit, to break through that barrier, to destroy whatever thought process or habit or rut that you're in that makes you continually practice selfishness. I think about this myself. This is me, guys. I'm doing the same thing. And I pray that he breaks me out of the habits and makes me go, oh, this is another moment where I get to die to self, suffer loss for the sake of Christ so I can reveal what Jesus looks like when he suffers out of love. So that others could see the glory and beauty of Christ in me and they wouldn't go, Pastor Mark, you're a great guy. They go, wow, Jesus is beautiful. Jesus took that loss on the cross and he knew it was loss because he knew there was gain in the resurrection. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that is set before you, that is eternal joy and that is an abundant life now. For the joy that is set before you, it's our turn to endure loss. Even if it's our life. That is why Paul commands in 1 Corinthians seven twenty one that slaves remain content in their slavery if they've been saved as slaves unless the opportunity for freedom is presented then you can take it but he says be content with the loss you're in Christ now so we also must recognize that for us to sacrificially take the loss here and now for the sake of our brothers and sisters is our benefit later for the joy that is promised to us and sacrifice is what causes us to endure the loss now. That is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is sacrificial living like Christ. That is love. And that is unity in Christ. Let's pray. We deserve nothing from you, Father. We love you. We thank you. We enjoy your presence and we enjoy the unity that you create in us through your word. So draw us to your word. Make us, bring us to our knees in prayer and cause us to be filled with your spirit as we commune with you so we would all operate in your spirit, united in one thought and one sound doctrine, pursuing the ministry that you call us to each individually in our own unique lives. Pray that you would break down walls of division and build up unified thinking, Christ-like thinking, and sacrificial living so we can love others well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.